It's good to see the college students starting to return. And we are uh, in a study that we started before Christmas. It's called uh, A Chronological Look at the Birth of the Savior. And we've covered quite a bit of material in our study so far. Uh, Looking at the birth of the Savior, we started way back in eternity uh, before he he was born. We looked at his pre-existence. We looked at all the promises of his coming, or at least some of them out of the Old Testament. We looked at his genealogy from the human standpoint in Matthew and Luke. Uh, we saw how he was linked to the uh, Davidic throne through Solomon and Nathan back to David. We looked at the three major Old Testament salvific covenants, the Davidic, the Abrahamic, and the New Covenant. As Zacharias uh, praises God, celebrates God's mercy and the miraculous birth of his infant son, John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Christ. Uh, we saw how all the covenants were about to be potentially uh, fulfilled in the coming of the birth of the Messiah, but sadly some of the aspects of those covenants have been postponed uh, postponed because of the disobedience of the nation and the rejection of the Messiah. And last time we looked at the angelic explanation of the child in the womb of Mary, the virgin conception, the physical incarnation of Christ. How before Joseph and Mary came together uh, and uh, f- in a physical fashion, uh, Mary, the virgin, was found to be with child and through the supernatural intervention of the person of the Holy Spirit and how the angel came to Mary and tell her, told her of God's plan to use her to carry the Christ child. And then the angel again came and confirmed to Joseph her testimony that the fact that the child that she was carrying uh, was conceived in her of the Holy Spirit. So again, the child, of course, is Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Jehovah who saves, uh, and all of that took place to fulfill uh, what the prophet in Isaiah chapter 7 foretold. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 says, all this took place that was spoken through the Lord, Uh, by the Lord through the prophet, might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin will be with child, shall bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Joseph arose from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took her as his wife and kept her as a virgin until she gave birth to her son and called his name Jesus. It's a remarkable story, just a remarkable story, a remarkable story of God's grace, God's kindness. Uh, Again, the most unique event that's ever happened in the history of uh, mankind. Uh, Eternal God stepping into time, putting on humanity so that he might identify with us, that he might join with us, that he might bear our sin as being our substitute, dying in our place on the cross so that we would have our sins forgiven, that we might uh, be reconciled unto God. Again, he may save us and bring us into his family. It's an amazing story of God's grace. I told you last week it's an amazing story, a remarkable story. When you look at the... uh, young couple, Joseph and Mary, and try to put yourself in their spot. Uh, two righteous young people uh, willing to submit themselves to the will and the plan of God, although doing so in the context of the story uh, could bring them great personal report, uh, reproach because, again, uh, Mary's with child before they have legally fulfilled the requirements of the betrothal period, so that would possibly bring great reproach upon their character. Now, a long time ago, and we started this out, I uh, kind of plotted this all up thing out, and I I looked at all the portions of the scripture that I thought we should look at, and I tried to group them together in a chronological fashion, because that's what this is, a chronological look at the birth of the Savior. And I told you I was hoping to get through the series in about six or seven sermons. But the reality is, the more you study the scripture, you know this if you study, uh, and the deeper you go down, the more God opens up his truth to you, and the more you see tremendous truths that are encouragement to your heart, and you just kind of take you all kinds of all kinds of different directions. So as we gather tonight, we're in our sixth time together on the subject. And the reality is we could probably pretty easy put another six sermons uh, together on the topic and not even uh, be close to be done with it. But I don't want to do that. All right. So everybody takes a big breath and goes, Whew. 
right? Um, I, I want to try to finish this chronological look at the birth of the Savior before, Lord willing, we celebrate the birth of the Savior in 2021, right? So that means if I'm going to get through this, I have to be a little bit selective uh, on what I cover. And it means I've got to not run too many tangents. Uh, I've got to make, at some points, make uh, move rather rapidly through the text, which are all things that I'm not very good at doing. Uh, so I want to try to do things I'm not normally able to do because I want to try to wrap the series up in the next week or so. So again, we're looking at the chronological story of the birth of the Savior. So where exactly are we in the story? Well, we're right at the birth. Right? So I want you to take your Bible, and I want you to open up to Luke chapter 2. And sadly, this is going to have to be a portion of Scripture that we move through rather quickly because at least the first 20 verses or so of Matthew chapter 2 are probably pretty familiar to most of us. Now, after I say that and take a breath, I want to stop and warn all of us that familiarity with the Word of God can be a very dangerous thing. Luke chapter 2 is probably one of the most and best known, widely known chapters in the Bible because it tells the Christmas story, if you will. And since we've heard it so often, there's a great danger in becoming a great danger to become less caught up with the profound truths that God has left for us in that portion of Scripture. And again, the most profound truth is the fact that 2,000 years ago, the creator of the universe, the eternal God, the uh, entered into human society as a baby. The creator of the universe put on humanity. The Lord of heaven, again, stepped into time to live on this earth. That's one of the most amazing truths that could ever affect our lives, that reality the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the central fact of Christianity, and the entire uh, superstructure of Christian theology uh, depends on that reality. The fact that God has come into time, and again, God has come in human flesh. It's not only an essential doctrine, that reality must, and that reality has to affect everything we do. That reality has to affect the way that we live our lives. It has to affect the way we think. It has to affect the way we act. It has to affect the way we process everything that's going on around us in the world in which we live. That reality that God has become a man. So if we ever end up in a position where the story becomes too familiar to us, we've got problems. We're in a dangerous position. Repeatedly in the New Testament, you see things like this. Paul telling the Corinthians or telling the church at Philippi, uh, Philippians 3.1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. It's a safeguard for you. Paul was into repetition. Peter, writing to the churches for their protection, their spiritual growth, while contemplating the imminent death, his imminent death, as a bondservant apostle of Christ. Second Peter one twelve, he says, Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by uh, way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me. And I will be diligent that in any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. So these men are saying repetition is good and over-familiarity was bad. It's dangerous for our spiritual growth. It's dangerous for our spiritual position. 
that we just allow the fact that God has become a man to ever enter into our mind in any category like I already know that. Let's get on with the story, right? That's a dangerous place to be. I was reading some part of this last week. Uh, an author called the story of the Incarnation the Scandal of Grace, and I thought that's really good. That's a helpful reminder of how profound this story is, that God would step into, into humanity, that he would take on our flesh, the scandal of grace. Uh, we should never become tired of that reality. We should never become tired of that story that, again, God has become a man. That has to affect us at the very core of our being. Now, again, I say all of that to say that I can't, I can't run tangents like that because we don't have time. But since I'm up here, I'm the guy that's directing it, and you don't really care when you leave. I do what I want, right? The scripture here in Luke chapter 2 I want to cover points that we're going to have to move pretty quickly. Points will slow down just a little bit. But reality, we start in Luke chapter 2. Where I really want us to go is uh, over to Matthew chapter 2. Because I want you to see how the Magi fit into the story. But let's just begin. Let's look at the top of chapter 2 and with just a little bit of comment. And again, we're going to try to keep our minds moving along in a chronological fashion to understand the story. Now, the angel has come and told Joseph and Mary that there's a supernatural birth that's going to take place. They're going to be a part of it. Again, it's the, it's the virgin conception more than the virgin birth, right? It's the virgin conception. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Now, it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, Caesar Augustus is obviously a well-known person out of history. He's a great military political leader in Rome. One who was born Gaius Octavius, who is now the Caesar. The Caesar who is known as Augustus. That means he is the majestic one, or the highly honored one, the holy one, or at least that's what he wants people to think. He is a man, a mere man, and he wants people to honor him as he's God, because he thinks he's God. He wants to be worshipped as God. He wants to be known in the context of the story, he wants to be known as the savior of the world. But he is a usurper to those titles. And he's obviously not who he claims to be. Caesar happens to be a very godless man. He cares nothing about the truth. He never cares nothing about the true God, nor does he care about the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Caesar Augustus wrongly believes that he is ruling the world when in reality God is in charge. Put that down remember it. Human emperors, human kings, human presidents, human congress, senators aren't in charge of this world. God is. So here's a man, Caesar Augustus, that is really nothing more than an instrument in the hands of God. And God is the one who's orchestrating all the events behind the scene to bring together all of the details in order to accomplish the birth of his Savior, our Savior, the Messiah, at the right time in the right place, verse 3. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and is with child. Verse 6, it came about that while they were there, the days uh, were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Uh, someone rightly said that at this point here, God has invaded uh, alien hostile territory, and that's what's happened here, right? God has come into this world. And he's lying there as a baby in a manger. 
And he's come to bring the good news of reconciliation, peace with God. Uh, the hymn writer says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate de- deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. That's who he is. Now here with the, the verses I just read, it's somewhat of a sad and lonely picture. Because here at a time of great personal need, uh, of assistance, there's none given to this woman. There's no hospitality extended to this man and this woman. This woman who's about to give a birth to a child was turned away because there's no room for them. Normally, the, the Jews were hospitable people, very civilized people, but not in this case. Again, at the time of the registry, the city's full of travelers. Uh, people are busy here and there. The innkeeper, he's just trying to do his job. He's trying to keep up with the the travelers, his customers, and everybody is busy, and everybody's too busy to help. There's nothing in the story that suggests the fact that everybody's busy, and there's no room for them in the end. There's nothing to suggest there's anything sinister or hateful in the story. There's nothing that suggests any kind of hostility or anybody even unsympathetic to the plight of the woman and her condition. The reality is everybody's just busy. Everybody's busy. All the time-saving devices in which we live in our world, we're all what? Busy. More busier than perhaps we've ever been. Right? We're busy. Everybody's busy. And here in the context, she, everybody was busy and no one could pay attention to the woman or her need. So no one could also not even pay attention to, the, to her need and what was going on on a physical level. Nobody paid attention to the fact that the greatest event in all of human history is about to take place right under their very eyes, the incarnation of God. Now Mary, Mary apparently delivers the baby by herself in some kind of a place set up for animals. Which, again, the whole story is somewhat reminiscent. First Christmas is somewhat reminiscent of what's a a picture of how uh, Christmas is celebrated in the time in which we live. Again, most people are too busy, too busy to understand the issue. Therefore, most people in the celebration of Christmas, quote-unquote, in the celebration of Christmas, they miss the significance of Christmas, they miss the significance of the birth of Christ, and they miss the person of Christ, which, again, is supposedly what they are worshiping or who they are worshiping in their celebration of Christmas. Verse 8 says, in the same region, so right outside of Bethlehem, right outside the city in the country, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping their watch over their flock by night. So here comes the first announcement publicly of the birth of the Messiah. And it's not given to the influential, it's not given to the religious leaders, it's not given to the political leaders, but to some lowly shepherds who are out in the field doing their job, keeping their flock. And the birth of the Savior is in obscurity and anonymity, And so, too, is the first announcement of the birth of the Savior. It's in obscurity and anonymity. Now, if we were in charge of this event, I would suggest to you, in our human wisdom, we would say we need to put on a big show. Right? We need to make sure that everybody knows this thing. We need to make sure that we go to the high, the mighty, the influential. We need to make sure that all the major news outlets are there so this message gets broadcast everywhere. Human wisdom would say, let's take this thing... Uh, this announcement, and let's make it in Jerusalem. Certainly not outside the city of some uh, seemingly insignificant small town called Bethlehem, and certainly not out in some nondescript field, and most certainly not to some lowly shepherds. Because in the context, shepherds were thought of as uh, outcasts. Their work made them ceremonially unclean. Shepherds were, in society, really insignificant. They were uneducated unskilled. They regarded really as the lowest of the low, uh, the least of all men in the culture. They lived with animals. What does that mean? They stinketh, right? They stink. I mean, literally, they're out there living with animals. 
They lived with animals. They smelled like animals. They were known as a group, as liars. They were untrustworthy, and they weren't even allowed to give testimony in court. That's significant. But here, God comes and announces the Savior, the birth of the Savior to men like these. And again, it's a remarkable story of God's kindness and condescension because it's for men like these that the Savior has come. And it really should be an encouragement for us. The Savior has not come into the world for the high and mighty, for the influential, for the self-sufficient. Rather, the Savior has come for the lowly, the meek, the afflicted, the brokenhearted, the outcast. The Lord has come into this world for the sake of those who see their sin, that they understand they are desperately in need of God's mercy, God's kindness. God has come into the world through his Son uh, for those who are not well, those who are sick, those who need a Savior, and those who know they need a Savior. In the same region, there were some shepherds. Again, they're probably raising sheep that are going to be used in the temple sacrifices. Staying out in the fields, keeping their watch over the flock, their flock by night, verse 9, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. No advance warning. Right directly from the throne of heaven, right directly from the presence of God, this angel appears before these men. It is somewhat of an understatement to say, again, angelic visitations are not very common uh, in an everyday occurrence. Uh, therefore, it goes without saying, when you see angels show up, you get the you get the. Uh, uh, belief that something significant is about to happen, and, and it is. Verse 9 goes on, it says, The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly afraid. Now, as significant as the angels showing up, the, rea- the real significance is found in the fact that the glory of the Lord shone around them. So there they are, they're out in the middle of the field, right? They don't have city lights like we do. It's dark, pitch black dark. And all of a sudden, this light, like glorious light of the noonday sun, shows up. Biblically, when the glory of the Lord showed up, it was a representation of his physical presence. God is a spirit, right? He's without body. And every time he manifested himself, when he chose to display himself among men, he did so by means of visible light. So the glory of the Lord is the visible, brilliant, glorious, shining presence of God himself. So here's this angel right from the presence of God. I don't know if he's got glory all over him or he brings some of it with him as he zaps from uh, where the presence of God here in the time, but the glory of the Lord shone around them, and it says they were all terribly frightened. You would think, right? The shepherds are standing, and all of a sudden an angel shows up, and in the Greek it's megasphobia. Right? You can get that, right? Megaphobia, right? I mean, they're, they're terribly frightened. They're literally shaking. But the angel comes and says, look, this is not a time for terror. This is not a time uh, for uh, being afraid. This is an occasion of great joy. Because the angel comes and he brings not a message of condemnation, but he brings uh, a message of good news. It's not a time for judgment. It's not a time for condemnation. It's a time for the proclamation of the good news. And it's to these lowly shepherds that this proclamation of Christ comes. Verse 10. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. So again, this is not a time for fear, it's a time for joy. It's a time for understanding that God is gracious. It's a time for understanding God's gracious purposes. That he has come into the presence of men, and he has come uh, with a proclamation of his love, his mercy. He comes to alleviate fear, and he comes to, uh, to bring good news. The angel, again, has a message not of judgment, not of punishment, but rather a message of good news. Uan Galezo is the word. That's that means gospel. So the the angels are are evangelists, right? They bring the greatest good news that anybody could ever hear, which causes it says in the text great joy. And now you have Magus Kara, 
great joy, great gladness. So again, this is the greatest news that anybody could ever hear. It's the greatest news that anybody could ever proclaim with their, their own mouth. And again, the angels say this is for all the people, Jew and Gentile alike, for the meek, for the lowly, for the outcasts, for those who don't fit into society, even like the shepherds. Verse 11, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So this is a personal message. It's for you. It's about a a baby who's got three different names that the angel declares. The angel declares him to be a Savior. And again, the Bible says there's only one Savior. There's no other salvation found among men under heaven uh, except the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is sent into this world again out of God's tremendous love for lost men. Who's come on a mission of mercy, a mission of rescue, to deliver, to redeem. To deal with the issue of our sin, to take our penalty. To take our punishment, to become our substitute upon Calvary's cross. He is the Savior, the angel said. And then he says he is the Christ. The anointed one, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, one promised all the way back from Genesis 3 and 15 and forward, the one who comes in power to fulfill God's purposes on the earth. And then the angel says he's the Lord, Kyrios. That's his sovereign name. He is the master. He's the ruler of the universe, the sovereign one. He is the one who alone has the right to rule and reign over the universe with all authority. He rules and reigns over both heaven and earth because he created it. He owns it. It belongs to him. So these are the three names that the angel identifies the true identity of this child. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign, verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger, verse 13. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Listen, in this situation, one angel is not enough. Right? We've got to get some more there. So here's a multitude of angelic beings stepping into time, the presence of men doing what they do in heaven. They rejoice and they praise God. They glorify God. They praise God for him sending his son, the savior of mankind into this world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, the angels knew him. The angels knew him before his incarnation, right? Because they too lived in that Uh, eternal uh, presence of God. They knew the second person of the Trinity before he stepped into time. They knew the fall of man. They knew God's gracious and merciful uh, compassion and his desire to save men because of or due to the consequences of their sin. They knew that. They knew that God had a tremendous love for mankind, so much so that it would cause him to send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. And so much does the son love fallen mankind that he was willing to come and to fulfill that role. To come, take on our flesh for the sole purpose of one day dying on the cross. So here's a baby who's been born for the express purpose to die. Here's the sinless one who becomes again the perfect substitute. The one who bears our sin in his body on the tree. They knew all of this. So they all gather together and they, in this anthem of praise, they praise God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. God has chosen to be gracious to men, therefore he should be praised, and he should be praised always. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased, meaning this, that he's not pleased with some men. He's not pleased with all men. He's only pleased with those who accept the offer of mercy and forgiveness, the offer of peace through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who don't, those who reject God's mercy, Those who reject his kindness and his love and the incarnation of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not pleased with those. 
fact, they're going to face his eternal anger because they've spurned his kindness and spurned his grace and spurned his mercy and the sacrifice of his son. Verse 15 came about when the angels had gone away to them into heaven. The shepherds began to say one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So these guys don't go to the right. They don't go to the left. They don't stop off for coffee. They don't take care of the sheep. They just go straight to Bethlehem in a hurry to see the Savior. They want to see the one who's been made known to them. Because now Christ has become a priority for them. They understand that only those who personally make their way to the Savior are going to ever enjoy the benefits of the Savior. Right? That God has graciously given to men. You have to personally make your way into the Savior's presence. And that's what these men do. And these men can't get there fast enough. They can't wait to see the long-awaited one. They can't see uh, the one who is going to pay for their sin and set them free from their penalty because they knew that all the sheep that they were dealing with were just a picture. They knew that the the, the blood of bulls and goats and sheep could never take away sin. It was always a picture of someone who was going to come in the future. They knew that. And now he's there. right? It's only this one who can solve their problem. Verse 16, they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay there in the manger. Exactly like the angel told them. Here's the king of heaven, the Lord of all, the author, the creator of life. Now God could have had him born in a palace, but he's born in a stable, laid in a manger. What in the world's that? It's just a feeding trough. Laid in a feeding trough. What a picture of the high king of heaven humbling himself, coming down, taking on our humanity. I'm absolutely guarantee you that none of us understand the depth of the humility of Christ when he steps into time and takes on our flesh, the eternal one, because we all, all of us, and I don't mean this unkind, but the reality is we all think too highly of ourselves. We all think that we're pretty bad. Yeah, I know that. But we don't understand the depth of how bad we are. The depth of how bad we are is that the Lord of heaven had to come and put on our flesh in order to redeem us, and that's the only way that we could be redeemed. The high king of heaven laying there in a stinking stable in a stinking feeding trough in the middle of nowhere. And no one's paying attention to it except these men. Verse 16, again, they came in haste, found their way to Mary and Joseph as the baby lay there in the manger. Again, here's the high king of heaven. Here's the Lord of all. God could have had him born in a palace, but he's there in a in an animal's feeding trough. Verse 17, And when they had seen this, right, the proclamation made by the angel of the heavenly host and the child in the manger, just like the angel had said, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. Guess what? And immediately they go to the person of Christ, they see him, and immediately they start doing what? They start praising God, right? But they're professing Christ. They're passing on the information they know about him. They're giving witness. They're giving testimony. They're speaking to the reality of what they have heard and what they know about the person of Jesus Christ, verse 18, and all who heard it, which implies there were other people there. People could hear what the angels had to say or what the shepherds had to say. Not, not just Mary and Joseph. That's not the idea here. There's other people who heard what the shepherds had to say. It could have been people who heard the child crying and come to see what was going on. It could have been people who were attending to the animals out there in the, uh, uh, out there in the barn. Could have been perhaps other lodgers that couldn't find a, a, a place to stay. They too had to stay out there in the stable. But there's a number of people listening to the testimony that the shepherds are giving about the Christ, about this child. 
And all who heard it, it says, wondered. They marveled. They were astonished at the things which were told them by the shepherds. So they must have given some pretty convincing testimony, some pretty compelling testimony. It must have been real to them. The events must have been real to them because they communicated to those who were around them in a soft voice so nobody could hear. No, no, they shouted it out. And everybody could hear them because they were rejoicing and praising God and thankful for what God had revealed to them. All who heard it wondered at the things that were told to them by the shepherds, verse 19, but Mary treasures all these things up in her heart. Now the word treasure there means Mary kept it close to her heart. She kept it close to her mind. Mary listened to all the things that were told about her son, all the wonderful truths. She treasures it all. I mean, again, try to put yourself, I don't know how in the world you can, but try to put yourself in her position where she's a virgin again, not married, and now she's going to be with a child and she's going to be carrying the Christ. And then all these supernatural events start happening around her, and then the shepherds show up and they start making these wonderful proclamations of her son, and she's treasuring this. She's the mother of the Christ, the Savior of the world, who is the object of all men's worship. So she treasures them. She's not letting them go. She's holding on to them. Mary treasured up all these things in her treasured up all these things, pondering them is the next word in her heart. The word pondering means placing together. It's placing one truth next to another truth. The incar- or the uh, uh, virgin conception, angels, Christ, Lord. Jesus brings peace with God. Jesus brings the peace of God, etc. and so forth. She's pondering all these things. She's reviewing them. She's considering them. She's reconsidering them. That's the idea behind the word pondering. In the depths of her heart, she's just taking it all in. She's holding it close to her heart, and she's just thinking through all these things about her son. Verse 20, the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, as, just as had been told them. So again, when the event's over, the shepherds go back to their work, right? They got the sheep out there in the field. They got to get back to their responsibilities and and, uh, taking care of their sheep. But the experience that they have with the Christ, the experience they have with this angel and the multitude of angels, again, with the child in the manger, changes them. They went back glorifying and praising God for what they'd seen, what they'd heard. Listen, they had come face to face with mankind's only hope. That probably ought to change you. Face-to-face with mankind's only hope. Face-to-face with the incarnation of God's love. Face-to-face with the Savior. And they glorified and they praised God. The fact that God has intervened into human history. The fact that God has sent his dearly beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world not just to die for us, but to die for them. It became personal. He sent Christ into the world for my sin that I might be saved, that I might be redeemed, that I might be reconciled unto him. They glorified and praised God. I mean, it's a tremendous story. And again, I, I, I caution us, how in the world could we ever hear that story too much, that glorious truth? How could we ever allow the fact that God has become a man and put that into any kind of category in our mind of, I already know that, let's get on with it? Because it's the most profound truth that you could ever hear The scandal of grace, the condescension of Christ, the condescension of God uh, that has come into this world to bear our sin. And again, when it becomes too familiar with us, it's a danger to our soul, and the warning light in your mind ought to go off. 
Because we need to be a part of doing exactly what the shepherds did when they came in contact with this truth. What did they do? They glorified and praised God. They went back to their daily work, but they glorified and praised God. They gave testimony to what they knew. They glorified and praised God for all that he had done for them through this person, the Christ. Now that section is fairly familiar with most for most of us. What comes next here in Luke is probably not, unless you study through the book of Luke or have listened to somebody teach it expositionally. The next section is not quite as uh, familiar, but the theme that keeps repeating itself here is the testimony concerning who Jesus Christ is, the true identity of Jesus, his mission, right? We've got angel, an angel showing up, then we've got a whole bunch of angels showing up, and we've got a- shepherds who've gone and seen it, and, and now they are giving that testimony, right? That's the point here. It's t- who, did I ask you the question this morning? Who do you think Jesus is? It's the most important question that you'll ever face in human history. And they're giving testimony, all these different accounts of testimony. So again, the shepherds have come. They've just received the marvelous news, the announcement of the birth of the Savior. And now we're going to hear others in the context of the story give testimony. Verse 21. When the eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. The name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now again, we've got to kind of move through this uh, quickly. But again, the fact that Mary and Joseph have their newborn son circumcised circumcised means that they are obedient to God's law. They're obedient to God's law. Circumcision was a mark of Israel's national identity. As a spiritual object lesson, it was a lesson that men needed to be cleaned of their depravity. It was a physical symbol of spiritual cleansing of the heart that takes place at salvation. And it was most, uh, can I say it, intimate and personal that we as sinners bring forth sinners. And that sin needs to be cut away. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, was sinless, right? He didn't need to be cleansed. He doesn't need anything in his heart cleansed. But but he's come in in the world in order to fulfill the law perfectly. So in keeping with the Jewish customs, his parents submit him to this rite. And they give him the name that had been told them by the angel Jesus, which again means Jehovah or Yahweh's salvation. Jehovah saves. And interestingly enough, you know what? God is not a reluctant savior. Roman Catholic theology falsely puts forward that the God of the Old Testament is a very angry, vengeful God. He is a God who's hostile toward sinners. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, according to Roman Catholic theology, he's a little more kind, a little more gentle, a little more compassionate, a little more approachable. But he's not quite as approachable as Mary. So according to Roman Catholic theology, sinners really should go to her for salvation. Because sinner, or because Jesus can't resist his mother. That's what you get in Roman Catholic theology. Roman Catholic theology puts Jesus, or puts Mary forth as the co-redemptrix. Meaning she's equal with God in redemption. Which of course is utter, uh, absolutely utter blasphemy. Roman Catholic theology teaches the immaculate conception of Mary. Meaning that she too is without the stain of original sin. They would say that she is sinless which is, again, completely oppositical, contrary to biblical theology, and completely contrary to Mary's own testimony, her own admission. Back in Luke chapter 1, when she's praising God, verse uh, 46, Luke chapter 1, Mary said, My soul exalts in the Lord, verse 47, My spirit rejoiced in God my Savior. Right? She was a sinner. She knew that. She needed a Savior, just like everyone else. 
And it's really sad, I don't have time to go into it tonight, obviously, but it's really sad how Roman Catholic theology has not only perverted uh, the truth, but they've, they've really damaged Mary's uh, testimony as a righteous woman, as a, as a godly woman who wants to do the, the right thing before God because she's concerned about God's honor. She's not looking to be worshipped. She knows she's a sinner in need of a Savior. Right? So it's, it's a tragedy in all, all, all levels. God is not a reluctant Savior. He desires to save men, verse 22. And when, and when, uh, the, days of, uh, and when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up uh, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Verse 23 says, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So again, just as it was with the circumcision of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, they're observing the law. They're observing the days of purification. And they're coming to the temple, again, in obedience to the law of Moses. They are righteous people. Now, like male circumcision, a woman's purification after childbirth was an illustration of the need of cleansing from sin. And the uncleanness here really is ceremonial. Uh, with a male child, it was eight days. She couldn't go to the temple for eight days, and then on the eighth day, he was circumcised. And then 30 days after that, she was seen as unclean, where, again, an unclean woman couldn't go anything into the temple. They couldn't touch anything that was sacred or holy. So it's a ceremonial uncleanness that really kind of tempers the joy, if you will, of bringing a new life in the world. When you have a child, everybody's celebrating Right, but here's the kind of a cooling off period, if you will. Here's a, a time where you can't go to the temple, a time where you can't touch holy things, sacred things, just as, again, a sober reminder of the fact that we as sinners bring sinful people into the world, right? Just like sinful, uh, par- uh, sinful parents bring in sinful children, uh, just like their parents. Now, the Old Testament says if a woman brought a female child into the world, the time of uh, separation, the time of being a um, purification was doubled. It's 60 days. And some have suggested the reason perhaps that it's doubled uh, serves uh, as an illustration, again, of sin and depravity, just like circumcision did. Perhaps doubling the length here with a woman, some commentators would suggest uh, that uh, it uh, reflects on the stigma of the woman, Eve, who brought sin into the human race, right? So it's, again, just another reminder of sin. But in obedience to God, in obedience to the word of God, the law of Moses, verse 22, when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young, or, or two young pigeons. So her 40 days of uncleanness are... Uh, uh, over following the birth of her son. So Mary and Joseph, they go up to the temple to offer sacrifice. Again, revealing the fact that they're righteous, the righteous character of, the indiv- of these two individuals. They, they again expose or reveal the fact that they want to obey God. They want to honor God. They want to see God honored. They want to obey God's laws. Now, obviously, the sacrifice of the life of an animal, no matter what it is, is a picture of what will happen to their own son. Right, because all these sacrifices were pictures of the coming one, uh, the Messiah. So they're uh, sacrificing here the life of this animal as a picture of the sacrifice that their own son is going to make a few uh, years on here at, at the cross. And that sacrifice is going to uh, going to provide men direct access into the very presence of God. That sacrifice is going to uh, uh, have God's wrath paid in full. That uh, sacrifice will atone for sin for those who place their faith in him who, has, uh, who is the Savior. Now, normal sacrifice was a one-year-old lamb. But for people who were poor, the law said they could bring uh, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. 
that could be substituted. So the fact that they bring this turtle dove or two young pigeons uh, suggests that Mary and Joseph were poor. It also suggests that they've not met the Magi yet, right, the wise men. Because if they had the valuable gifts that the Magi would have brought to this young couple could have been used to allow Mary and Joseph to afford a lamb for a sacrifice. But they don't have that, so they substitute what which was permitted. Uh, Mary, again, goes with Joseph, and they offer this sin offering, again, which is consistent with the reality that she's a sinner in need of a Savior. Uh, again, the Catholic teaching that uh, Mary was immaculately conceived finds no support with the Bible. So this couple, this young couple, Mary and Joseph, again, in their teens, they're obedient. They give this child a name that was told them in obedience to the angel's command. They present him to the temple just like the law required. They observe the law of purification. They pay the fee required to redeem their firstborn son because they're righteous individuals. And because they're righteous individuals, what does that mean to the story? It means their testimony can be counted on. Their testimony is true. The over, again, repeated validation of their righteousness, their demand to honor God, their, their desire to honor God, proves the fact that what they say about their son is true. Their story of the conception is true. Why would they do all these things to honor God and then all of a sudden make up a crazy story, right? They're caught up in the story. But the testimony of their lives gives, again, validity to the testimony of their statement that the child inside Mary is of virgin conception, Right? All of this is true, what the scripture says. Verse 25, Behold, there was a a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, consolation of Israel is a messianic title, and consolation is perkalesis. We would use that word in the New Testament as a comforter. Sometimes it's associated with the Holy Spirit, a comfort, an encouragement. So Simeon is looking for the consolation of Israel. He's looking for the consolation of salvation for himself and for the nation, for the national deliverance. Again, the promises of the Davidic and the Abrahamic covenant are in the background in the context of the culture. And Messiah, listen, is seen as the only one who's the hope of the nation. The only one who's the hope of the nation. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So again, God through the Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would have the great and unusual privilege of seeing the Savior. He would see the Savior before he died. He would understand that he is the Savior, this one he's going to hold in his arms. So again, obviously, he's a godly man. He's one who's lived in constant state of joyous expectation that he would see the Savior, which again must have had some kind of sobering effect on the way that he lived his life. The reality that God was going to come into the world, that the Savior would come, and he would have the privilege of seeing that Savior, had to have an effect on the way that he lived his life. Even as a righteous man, it changed his life, it changed his thinking, it changed his action, his thoughts. And one day the event occurs, verse 27. He came in the Spirit in the temple, and when the parents had brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. So he meets Mary and Joseph... And then he sees the Christ, the the child Jesus, verse 28. Then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He took the the child in his arms. He blessed God and said, Lord, you can let your bondservant depart in peace. I can die now because according to your word, I have seen your salvation. I understand the gospel. 
And listen, the gospel is not just in a proclamation of truth. It is. But the gospel is bound in a person. It's bound in that child. The gospel is a person. The Lord Jesus Christ, he understood, again, that salvation is found in this child. This one who, again, was sent into time uh, because of God's kindness, because of his mercy, because of God's love to fulfill, again, all the promises of the Davidic and Abrahamic covenants. The one who would bring salvation to, to the nation from their enemies, but most importantly, salvation from their sins. And he's holding this child. One who would be a blessing not only to the nation, but a blessing to all the nations. Look, verse 31. Which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. So again, you know the story. Israel mistakenly believed that they alone were God's elect, that they alone were God's recipients of grace, God's kindness, and all the other nations uh, were not. But the promise, again, through Ab- by God through Abraham was that God would bless the world. It, 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 I said it at the time, the Abrahamic covenant is really a covenant of mercy, and there is a fountain, a river of mercy that flows forth from, from Abraham. God wanted to show mercy to all men through Abraham, through the seed that would come from him. And that one who is Simeon, who Simeon is holding right now in his very arms is that very promised seed of mercy to the to the nations, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Verse 33, his mother, his father and mother were amazed at these things that were being said about him. It's interesting, I think. They knew it. They knew a lot of it, right? They knew the supernatural origin of the child. But the more they heard, the more they knew. The more they heard, the more they knew, the more they were amazed that their little child, their baby, was indeed the Savior of the world, the Messiah. Verse 34, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother. Now it's interesting here because Joseph's not mentioned. It's thought by many commentators perhaps that Joseph died sometime after the Passover where where Jesus was 12 in Luke chapter 2. Because from that point forward, Joseph drops off the scene. He disappears from the Gospel's account. Uh, uh, the account of Jesus' life and his ministry. From that point forward, whenever Mary is mentioned, Joseph is not. So many commentators think perhaps at that point Joseph passed away. So it's important here for Mary to know what's going to happen to her child and not to be surprised by the hostility that her child is going to endure by many. Again, she's going to have to endure that reality or deal with that reality apparently without Joseph. Simeon said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. So again, Simeon says this child is going to be a divider of men. He's going to be a determiner of people's destinies. And many people are going to stumble over him. Many people are going to stumble over him and fall into judgment. Those who believe will rise to eternal life, but those who reject him are going to be judged. So his very life, his very presence in the world, is going to be a point of separation. People will speak out against him. They'll deny him. Uh, uh, because that's what the word oppose means. Many are going to mock him. Many are going to hate him. And eventually they're going to crucify him. That's the reaction that Jesus is going to face from unbelieving Israel and unbelieving nations, right? As the nation has rejected her son, right? Mary needs to know that this is what's going to happen. Many people are going to suffer. Simeon gives her a picture of what she's going to have to endure as the mother of this child in the future, Verse 35, a sword will pierce even your own soul. 
So Mary's going to have to watch the hatred, the rejection of her son. She's going to have to watch the hatred that obviously culminates in the, uh, the, at the cross where she watches her innocent son murdered right before her eyes. And Simeon goes on and says, To that end, the thoughts of, from many hearts may be revealed. So again, Jesus is the divider of men. Some are going to receive him, but men are going to, most of them are going to hate him. The evil thoughts of their wicked hearts are going to be revealed, Simeon says. They'll reject him because their deeds are evil. The light has come into the world, and men hate light. They love their sin. So again, Simeon knows who this child is. He's giving testimony. Right? The evil world may reject him, but this is the Christ. This is the Lord's anointed. This is the one whom God has promised to send to, to all of the nations, the glory of Israel. So he gives testimony that this child is the Savior. He gives testimony to the wonderful reality of who he is. He is the Messiah. But before this portion of Scripture ends, there's another one who comes, another person who comes and gives testimony. This time it's an elderly lady named Anna. Verse 36. There was a prophetess, Anna, the son, the daughter of Phanuel, who is the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage, and then widowed to the age of 84. And she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers, verse 38. And at that very moment, so at God's providential time, and at that very moment that Simeon is singing his prophetic hymn of praise about the Christ child, at that very moment, she walks up, Anna walks up, to Mary and Joseph and to the child Jesus. She came up, and it's the text says, began giving thanks to God. And not only that, she continued to speak of him to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem, right? So she gives testimony just like everybody else. This is the Christ. This is the one that the world has been waiting for. This is the only hope of the nations. It's this child. The gospel is in this person. And again, it's quite a story. So the old lady stands and praises God and gives thanks to God for his mercy, for sending his son. Uh, she gets to see also the Lord's anointed before she dies. And again, she's another one in the long line of individuals who gives testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Again, it's a common theme here in the book of Luke surrounding the birth of Christ. Praise to God and further testimony to the divine origin of the child. Elizabeth, back in chapter 1, praises God for his mercy. Mary does likewise in chapter 1 of Luke. Obviously, Zacharias towards the end of that chapter. The angels show up, right? And they give testimony, along with Simeon, Anna, and the shepherds, right? These are godly individuals, a remnant amongst humanity who are left, who are looking for and anticipating that the Lord would visit his people and bring them salvation. Why? Because that's what he said he would do. It's that simple. That's what he said he would do. That's what he promised throughout the entire Old Testament. That's the promise that God gave the Old Testament prophets. And because God says it, it happens, right? These promises are literally fulfilled. God is going to bring to the nation of Israel and to the world the salvific blessings again of the Abrahamic, Davidic, and the New Covenants. It's all being fulfilled right in front of him. Verse 39 ends with when he had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, or when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city. It's a tremendous story. Now to try to keep the chronology going here, because that's what we're doing, I want you to take your Bible and turn over to Luke, to, to Matthew chapter 2. I told you I was going there. 
And so you don't have heart problems. I'm not going to do much more than just introduce it. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, Magi from the east arrive in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Verse 3, And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means the least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Verse 7, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent, to them to Bethlehem, sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go make careful search for the child, and when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Having heard the king, they went on their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Let me tell you what, that's significant testimony. Because here comes the Persian kingmakers. And again, this is going to be a tremendous study looking at these guys, these wise men, these Gentiles from the east. Because they too were looking for with anticipation the coming of the Savior, the birth of the Christ, the King. Something that the nation of Israel missed completely. And again, they're going to come and they're going to give testimony that Jesus is the Christ, that he's a long way to Messiah King. And again, it's another great testimony, another great story of the reality of who is Jesus. But you know what? It's also a story of tremendous faithfulness. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to look at this. Because these men come to the realization that Jesus is the king, the long-awaited uh, Messiah, because way back in their history, there was a faithful man named Daniel who shared his faith with these men's ancestors while he was in captivity in Babylon. You know, when he was in captivity in Babylon, he didn't sit around and mope about things are not the way they were in the olden days. He didn't join the protest march. He didn't assault the capital. He just became, just remained who he always was, faithful. And he gives testimony way back when to these men's ancestors, and they must have understood part of that because here they are years later. And in the context of the story, Matthew writes because he, and includes this historical narrative, because he is presenting Jesus as the what? You remember? The king. That's the reason that Matthew writes. He's the king of Israel. Jesus is the king of Israel. So again, he puts this historical narrative in the fact that the Magi come, and again, they're the kingmakers, the Persian kingmakers. They come and they too give testimony, Gentile testimony, making known again the reality the person of this uh, child, this person Christ. And it's a tremendous paradox here. Because the, the, the Jews who should have been looking for the Messiah... 
and should have understood him when he showed up. They don't. They don't. They're not looking for him, and they don't recognize him. They should have recognized him based on the revealed word of God, but again, they don't. They didn't. And so they're so indifferent to this person, they come to the point of even hating him, they'll have him executed. Where these Gentiles, who are not directly the part of the covenantal promises that God had made with the nation of Israel, they seek to know him, they seek to honor him, and they want to come and do what? Worship him. Right? They want to worship him. So again, remember back in Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we saw it from both the human side and the divine side. That proves that Jesus is the Christ. He is the king of Israel, right? He's the one who links all the way back to, to, to David and, and his throne. So he de- deserves that royal honor and worship. And so what you have in chapter 2 of Matthew is you have that royal honor and worship. Here are these Gentiles coming. They recognize that Jesus is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. That's who he is. He is the one who has the right to rule, and he is the one, again, who deserves to be worshipped. So again, the place where he should have been recognized, the place where he should have been honored and worshipped, the place that he should have been hailed as the king of Israel, he wasn't. They don't seek him. They don't care about him. They can't even take the time to be bothered to, to make the short trek over to Bethlehem to see if all these things are true. Instead, what you have is some strangers coming from a distant land, seeking and worshiping and adoring this person, this child, the Christ, who is the king. And the Magi come into the story because they're really the first fruits of the Gentile nations. Again, they show up in God's redeeming plan because God has promised through Abraham to send mercy to the nations. And these men, these Gentile men show up, and they represent that mercy coming to fruition. Now, when we go through the story, we're going to have a tremendous time together. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Last time I preached through this portion, it took me three times. I'll try to condense it down into one. We may be here a couple hours next week, Lord willing, if we can come back and do that. But it's a tremendous story. We're going to have an opportunity, and again, I don't know how much time I'll have to get into it, but to see Herod the king, again, who's the usurper, usurper to that title. Herod is an interesting fella. <clears throat> I tell you what, you don't want to ever have been in part of Herod's family. Uh, Herod is such a wicked individual, he makes our wicked politicians look like brownies. Okay? I mean, this guy is off the chart wicked. Right? Murders his favorite wife, one of ten. He murders his sons because he's afraid that they might want his kingdom and his throne. He is an insanely wicked man, and he has no desire to honor the king, no desire to the true king. He just wants to have him out of the way, right? So he's going to murder all the children. A tremendously wicked man. But again, his testimony, the testimony of these magi, give, uh, again, uh, fulfill the promise that, that Simeon said. Jesus, when he shows up, he's going to be a divider of men. He's going to be a divider of men. Most people are going to respond to him in hatred and hostility, but the Lord, and a lot of people in complete indifference, but there's a few who will face him and understand who he is, and they'll fall before his feet and worship him because he's worthy of that worship. All right? So there's a lot for us to unpack, Lord willing, next time. And I, I'm excited. I hope you are. Bring a friend. All right? Our Father and our God, we're thankful for just a tremendous day together in your word that points us always, morning and evening, to your Son, our Savior, to the fact that you're a gracious God, a merciful God, a God who desires to save men freely and have provided that salvation through your Son, our Savior. We honor you. We adore you. We love you. And again, thank you for the opportunity of gathering. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.